For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. A man in Kensington, New Hampshire, strangled a coyote to death after it attacked his two-year-old son. If you listened to last week's episode about the Chicago coyote that attacked and hospitalized a five-year-old human, you may be thinking, another attack? Oh, really? Yes, and it's O'Reilly. Ian O'Reilly. Ian, the father, was hiking with his family when he noticed a coyote approaching. The coyote grabbed O'Reilly's son by the hood of his jacket, dragged him to the ground. The boy's mother acted quickly and was able to separate the coyote from her son before the boy could be bitten. Ian O'Reilly rushed to get between the coyote and his family. He absorbed several aggressive attacks and received bites to the arm and chest. When he realized the animal wasn't going to leave, he kicked it in the jaw and pinned it to the ground. He was then able to grab the coyote's snout with one hand and place his other on its windpipe. After a nearly 10-minute struggle, O'Reilly managed to kill the coyote. Earlier that morning, two other coyote attacks were reported, likely involving the same animal. The first attack happened in the town of Hampton Falls at 8.40 a.m. when local police received a report of a coyote attacking a vehicle. Then, shortly after, at 9 a.m., a woman called the Kensington police to report that she and her two dogs had been attacked by a coyote. All three were bitten and received rabies treatment. The woman, Pat Lee, 62 years old, said, I was running behind the dogs to get them in, and just as I was here, literally, the coyote bit me in the butt. The New Hampshire Fish and Game is testing the animal for rabies, a probable cause for his kind of behavior. O'Reilly received his first round of rabies treatment immediately after the attack, but has four more remaining. Unfortunately, he's becoming all too familiar with the process, O'Reilly's four-year-old son was bitten by a rabid raccoon last year. 
what the heck is going on in New Hampshire. According to the CDC, 5,000 animal rabies cases are reported each year. Most of them occur in wildlife. Common hosts are bats, raccoons, skunks, and foxes. Rabies is almost always fatal to humans once symptoms appear. If you are bitten or scratched by a wild animal, you should seek medical attention immediately. Coyotes generally avoid humans, but in some cases, they can become aggressive, usually when sick or emaciated. Coyotes, like pigeons, geese, and deer, have adapted to thrive in the wildlife-urban interface and are becoming quite common on the fringes of towns and cities. Though they are generally a much bigger threat to pets than humans, people living in areas with coyotes should be aware that the animals can occasionally threaten humans, especially small children. Attacks are rare, but if you are attacked, do as O'Reilly did, and fight back. Rabies. This week, we've got tar heels, water, elk, recreation, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I had all sorts of stuff going on. Logistics planning for a big backcountry ice fishing trip. Cooked up some antelope and mule deer shanks for the Super Bowl. I toted a mule deer quarter to the Northwest Sportsman's Expo in Portland, where Stephen Ranella, Danielle Pruitt, Sam Lundgren, and myself put on a butchering and cooking demonstration. The mule deer quarter was what some would describe as a true quarter, which means I used my steel battery-powered chainsaw, who happens to power this podcast, to cut down the spine and through the pelvis of the deer. Typically, if one were to pull the hindquarter off of an animal without a saw, the meat would be separated from the pelvis, that little connective tendon in the ball joint would be cut, and the quarter would be removed, minus its respective half of pelvis and vertebra. The benefit to a true quarter is, the bones will protect the meat that attaches to them from being exposed to dirt or hair, and will not dry out as it isn't exposed to air either. The benefit to deboning at the hip joint is it's a better option if you're trying to save weight and don't have a saw. We met lots of great folks there in Portland, and I just want to take a minute right now to say thank you to everyone who showed up and all of you who uh, listened to Cal's Week in Review. So thanks. We're going to move into a couple of quick listener emails. I probably shouldn't just call them listener emails, as I bet, judging from some of the emails that I get, Some of you aren't just listening when you hear some of the stuff that, you know, I talk about on here. Hey! Anyway, here's one. What's your take on bird feeders? I have several and like to watch the chickadees, nuthatches, cardinals, juncos, titmouses, and many other feathered friends of Pennsylvania. The old lady across the road has enough feeders to feed the entire county's fowl. Do I need to have a chat with her or myself? Excellent question. I have a buddy named Wally that is a great example of a good bird feeder. We used to go sit in his backyard and watch the birds come into specific feeders throughout the year. This was right on a wildlife corridor with lots of deer, some moose, and black bears right on the edge of Haley, Idaho. Old Wally never had an issue, including with outdoor cats, and here's why. There was no surplus food. He researched and fed the different varieties of birds their preferred diet meaning you didn't have a jay digging through a whole feeder's worth of seed to get to the feed that the bird wanted, which also means no surplus food laying on the ground for cruising black bears. He hung feeders in areas that the birds would not be ambushed by cats, kept proper separation between feeders so everyone was comfortable and only fed a certain amount every day. As we have hit many times, the danger of feeding wildlife is real with birds too. 
Disease transmission, like house finch eye disease, could take over your feeder. The Autobahn Society recommends high-quality feed, feeders specific to the habits of the birds in your area, and cleaning your feeders with a 10% non-chlorinated bleach solution at a bare minimum, like if you're totally lazy in between seasons. Preferably, you're cleaning them several times a year. Katie writes in, letting me know why wildlife officers will use a taser in lieu of a tranquilizer gun. A taser will briefly incapacitate an animal, such as a buck with its antlers wrapped in a backyard hammock, allowing a wildlife officer enough time to free the deer. Tranquilizers run the risk of leaving an animal indefensible upon release while the drugs wear off or outright killing it from the combination of stress and unknown pre-existing conditions. Not too shocking when you think about it. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Moving on to North Carolina, the Tar Heel State. 
North Carolina was, at one point, one of the world's largest producers of tar, turpentine, pitch, resin, and other such, quote, naval stores, stuff used for building ships. They made that stuff by burning pine logs from North Carolina's famous pine forests until the wood seeped hot oil out of the spout. It's thought that the nickname Tar Heel was first used derisively to refer to the poor folks who had to boil all that tar pitch, but it came to become a source of pride during the Civil War. The first known reference showed up in a Raleigh newspaper quoting a Confederate soldier who claimed he and his North Carolinian compatriots had stood their ground in battle as if they had tar stuck to their heels, while others from a more oily state had retreated. North Carolinians standing their ground actually has a lot to do with what I want to talk about right now. They have some interesting debates going on regarding public access to waterways and whether to allow hunting on Sundays on public lands. First, stream access. Like several eastern states, North Carolina's stream access laws date back to when rivers were used primarily as corridors for travel and commerce. Over the years, that formed into a public trust doctrine, and the North Carolina Supreme Court affirmed in 1995 that streams that are capable of use by boats are open to the public to boat and wade below the high water mark. Navigable, in fact, is how that gets summed up. As in, the fact that you can float it means, you know, it's public. That may seem simple and easy, and it should be, but it isn't. There's plenty of little tiny trout streams that you couldn't dream of getting a kayak down even at high water, many of which are roundly considered private. But there are a long list of waterways that are not so straightforward. This issue has come back into the spotlight recently in regard to the Mills River located near the town of the same name. Crazy coincidence, I know. Mills River is about 20 miles south of Asheville, North Carolina. Back in September, they had a town council meeting regarding a fishing and hunting outfitter who had hung a rope and a no trespassing sign across the river. This particular individual had been also accused of harassing folks who were legally floating and fishing that navigable stream. It sounds like that issue on the Mills River was resolved amicably, but many people believe it speaks to an increasing pattern of conflict over private and public water in the state. Another major flashpoint for this issue is the Chattooga River, where a private sportsman's club has installed cattle gates, fencing, and even razor wire to keep the public off water they view as theirs. There is also a federal restriction on floating upstream of this club closure, which flies directly in the face of state law. It is important to note that the Upper Chattooga is a 52-mile-long federally designated wild and scenic river. American Whitewater has been in litigation over this paddling ban, It seems like a major proponent of the boating ban on the upper are a number of angling groups. Seems like there's some room to meet in the middle on this one. There are plenty of rivers that do not allow fishing from a boat or regulate fishing and floating days. Although that's a moot point if you round the corner and run into a cattle gate which has concertina wire over the top of it. While the Chichuga situation is not the same as the Mills River situation, the Chattooga access battle has been going since 1976 while the people of Mills River figured out their fight as a community and came to a, you know, group situation. Way to go, Mills River. Either way, it goes to show that these issues will continue to crop up and when the public land and water users fail to stand their ground, it's easy for a landowner to toss up a no trespassing sign or paint a tree. It's harder for a citizen to protest what may be an illegal action. That's why it's so important that we stay vigilant. If you're interested in stream access laws and issues, 
I'd suggest you check out American Whitewater and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, two of the groups working the hardest to keep your rivers and lakes open to boating, fishing, hunting, and whatever the heck else you want to do out there. I would also suggest getting involved in North Carolina Trout Unlimited and see what middle ground you can find or, you know, calm waters perhaps. Though the Tar Heel State public landowners seem to be standing up for stream access, I've got to ask if they've been asleep at the switch when it comes to what days they can hunt. Only a couple years after the name Tar Heel entered the public lexicon, North Carolina banned hunting on Sundays in 1869. This is what folks call a blue law. Old regulations there were meant to encourage or force church attendance on the Sabbath. That still exists in more states than you might think. Eleven still have some form of ban on Sunday hunting. You may have heard me talk about that prohibition in Pennsylvania. Well, after 150 years on the books, North Carolinian hunters are finally doing something about it. A law passed the legislature in 2017 that opened hunting on Sundays on private land except between 9.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m., and left the door open for the Game Commission to open public lands in a similar fashion. In the last couple weeks, the commission issued a survey to hunters and citizens about their feelings on that topic. About 30,000 people responded. This will be followed by six public forums. Nothing is for sure yet, except that the 9.30 to 12.30 closure would remain. But it is encouraging to see some movement on this. I just feel badly that my friends in the Tar Heel State only get half of their weekend to play with. For many people, that's half of their hunting season gone. So, if you live in North Carolina, or know anyone who does, encourage them to get involved in this discussion. Put some tar on your heels and stand your ground. Moving on to Colorado. Specifically, to the wonderful outdoor recreational hubs that are Aspen and Vail. These places offer amazing opportunities for all those who wish to spend time in the outdoors. Whether that is skiing, mountain biking, snowmobiling, dirt biking, and hunting, it's all there. They're growing exponentially. People from around the country find themselves moving there in droves. As developments push further and further into the wilds, elk are being pushed further and further from their crucial wintering grounds and even some of their most prominent summer feeding grounds. Development is not the only thing harming the elk, Your average everyday recreator is using more of our modern-day technologies to push further into the backcountry. Experts say the elk herds in the area have decreased by 50%. That's from about 20,000 down to 10,000 since the year 2000. The stress is becoming more than they can take. With a mass of people now finding their way into the beautiful backcountry areas, the elk are struggling to find new places to call home. Colorado Parks and Wildlife, or CPW, is continuing to study elk movements to try and nail down migrations and implement winter closures so that elk can live free of human interaction during the most critical times of the year. These winter closures are already taking effect on many large properties in the area, including Sky Mountain Park and Glossier Open Space. The closures take effect December 1st and are in place through May 15th, so stay out of those areas and let the elk be. Bumping or moving elk or deer during the winter and early spring can be lethal. Anyone, be you a hunter, a skier, a dog walker, a snowshoer, or even a roadside picture taker, has the ability to stress animals to death this time of year. If you think elk or deer are wintering in an area, avoid it. And you dog lovers, make sure you check regulations when you head out. Many areas that do not have mandated closures have dog restrictions to further help reduce the pressure on wildlife. 
Even the Pitkin County Commissioner, the county that encompasses the town of Aspen, believes that it is time for something to change. He said that it wouldn't bother him if the areas took a step back in trail construction and focused on elk herd resilience. Moving on. On the other side of the planet, one of the worst epidemics in recent history is taking place. The coronavirus has now infected more than 31,000 people and killed over 600. This is a scary time and the source of the virus is believed to have come from wildlife that was sold as food, more specifically bats and snakes. To help slow the spread of this virus, China imposed a temporary ban on selling and trading wild animals. But as we all know, people don't like to do as they're told. Police raided a storage locker and seized hundreds of frozen animal carcasses that were being sold via the country's most popular online messenger, WeChat. The offender, named only by her surname, was arrested after officers confiscated the carcasses of 250 birds, 48 raccoons, 30 squirrels, 3 pheasants, 2 leopard cats, which look like leopards and they're small, wild, and native to the area, and shockingly enough, 3 eagles. She also had advertisements for horse, dog, sparrows, along with the testicles of pigs and goats. This offender has been taken into custody and the investigation continues. Be interesting to see what they turn up next. Interestingly enough, she wasn't the only one selling these frozen carcasses. Investigators have exposed others selling animals in the province of Hubei, which is ground zero for this virus, and the province of Guangdong. This is where an investigation last week uncovered people selling these forbidden animals by hiding them in tents. I wish the best to all these people that have been affected by the virus and hope that they can put a stop to the spread soon. I also hope this puts a serious curtail on the illegal wildlife trade. On a brighter note, for the first time ever, a gray seal has been filmed clapping its flippers together in the wild. How about that? Although we've all been taught that a seal clapping its flippers is just kind of what seals do, apparently it's never been documented in the wild. I don't know if this is a real good thing for trainers or a real bad thing. Ben Burville is credited for taking the video. He is a marine biologist at Newcastle University in the UK. It took him 17 years of diving with seals to finally capture this behavior on film. Way to stay dedicated, Ben. Now, while the clapping in captivity is more of a form of entertainment for the excitable onlookers, this clapping in the wild has important purpose, similar to the purposes of elk bugles and turkey gobbles. This clap produces a high-frequency distinctive crack, Scientists believe that this sound is made to scare off other males during breeding season. This sound was previously thought to be made vocally, but the new video footage proves otherwise. And if you think about it, it also means that those seals at SeaWorld are probably telling their trainers to get away, which makes sense to me. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. As per usual, you can get a hold of me, tell me what I got right, tell me what I got wrong, and tell me what I'm missing at askcal at themeateater.com. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at themeateater.com. If you like what you're hearing, tell some friends. Leave me a review by hitting that furthest right-hand star, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and burnish buildup. 
Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.